welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Rachel Green, and I'm joined by our latest Charity Chat team member, Barpal Singh Gill. In this small talk episode, we'll discuss Barpal's career journey, which began by volunteering in the charity sector with a few different organisations before working in humanitarian aid disaster relief. He has worked in a few different countries, such as Malawi, Tanzania, Zambia, Turkey, and Lebanon, on a range of projects from WASH, Emergency Age, Livelihood Projects, amongst other things. He has also just completed an internship with the United Nations Resident Office in Kuwait, working on Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, as well as simultaneously finishing his postgraduate degree in Development Studies from the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Here is Barpool Singh Gill. Hi, Barpool. It's great to have you here and welcome to the Charity Chat team. Thank you, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited to join the team. Brilliant. And I guess that kind of leads to my first question. What led to your decision to join the podcast team here? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of reasons to why I joined. Uh, first of all, always, um, I thought it would be a great way to learn because um, I've listened to a couple of the previous podcasts and been some super really interesting topics. Um, I've definitely taken a lot away from the ones that I have listened to. So I thought it will be a great way to learn myself. Also, I thought it would be a really interesting and casual way to make connections. And yeah, I think the best way to make a difference in the world is with people and just uniting. And I thought it was a really interesting way to unite with and connect with different people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's definitely two of the main reasons why I joined as well. And also, I think just curiosity or nosiness, <laughs> finding out what other people do and what people are up to. So I know um, previously you've volunteered with uh, various different kind of humanitarian aid and disaster relief um, organisations, and that's led to you, you to work in several different countries such as Malawi, Tanzania, Mozambique and Turkey. And I just wondered, yeah, you know, what sparked those um, kind of travels? And yeah, is there a reason why they're those specific countries? And, you know, which organisations did you travel with? Super interested to hear more about that. I think I kind of fell in to the humanitarian aid and disaster relief sector. It wasn't what I planned, so I studied mathematics and computing at undergrad. Ah, oh, wow, very uh, different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely different. Um, I knew I wanted to do something positive, 
uh, work-wise and didn't want to work in an office. But I didn't actually know you can get a paid job within the charity sector or um, within humanitarian relief. Um, so I did a couple of volunteering stuff. So first, my first volunteering aspect was in Thailand when I was teaching English and that was like a summer at my university. And then after I graduated, I did three months in Tanzania. And then after coming back from Tanzania, it's kind of like, okay, how can I make this into a job? Because it's something that I really enjoyed. Yeah. But then it was difficult getting your first steps into it when especially your degree is so different. Mm. Um, but that's when I worked for a charity, Celia TK, in the UK, in Buckingham, uh, Buckinghamshire, in High Wycombe. And then from there, it just kind of rolled on. There was never a specific country I wanted to work in. It was more about the work or the need. Mm. So the last um, organization I worked with for was Carsaid International. And because they specifically just worked in humanitarian aid, disaster relief, it was meant depending on what were the budgets or what the crisis was at the time sort of meant which countries I went to. Yeah, so uh, what kind of projects did you work on with them? Really ranged, um, because they're a really small team. I was mm. like, when I left, I was like the only paid employee within the operations team. When I joined, there was a few more. You know, I went to Philippines when there was a volcano Tal erupted, uh, worked with a couple of organisations there. I was in Mozambique, I went to Mozambique when they had Cyclone Edai, um, but then I've also done like wash projects where we did solar powered water pumps in Zambia. Um, we I went to Iraq a few times where we supported IDPs, so that's in, internal displaced people. Um, so working with the UCD population in like refugee camps there, and again with Turkey, we worked with Syrian refugees mostly on the border and um, in other aspects of Turkey. Mm, wow very different projects but um you know I guess kind of goes right back to your um you know kind of aims of trying to work with many different people and assisting them and yeah I'm just kind of wondering has there been any valuable lessons or learnings that you've been able to kind of transfer from one project to another I think patience flexibility are a very important aspect in disaster mm. relief in humanitarian aid I think because there's always going to be something that goes wrong there's always extra costs that you um, you don't see logistical problems as well um, mm. it's a nightmare in certain countries I guess in some ways you sort of detach yourself from what you're actually doing and the people that you're trying to help because then for myself I had to sometimes make tough decisions mm. and I felt like I tried to make the decisions based on the information that I had or the facts that I had rather than the people that I was interacting with. Mm, that must be really challenging I guess um, so I've recently kind of tried to read a little bit more into you know kind of decisions and why we have bias and things like that so it's interesting to see that obviously you have to take those kind of things into account and 
in those kind of cases where you're making tough decisions um I assume are you kind of working with an international team or is it more with a local team on the ground that can kind of help you understand you know the background and the context of every project you work on yeah so we mostly work with local teams Mm. um so we'd find other organizations so small organizations that we could partner with but sometimes they could also be larger uh, organizations so in zambia we partnered with the zambian red cross a couple of times also plan international but then a lot of the most of the times it was with small ngos local ngos grassroots ngos who had local knowledge was able to provide information that i just wouldn't be able to attain mm. without them and so yeah you know relying on their sort of expertise taking it on board and then saying okay listen to you but we're going to do this and then is it something you'll be able to support and most of the time it was I guess I've only ever kind of worked on longer term projects they're very different but um you know at the point where you know you're kind of wrapping up the project is that when the project kind of comes to a natural conclusion is there a handover to local infrastructure and communities um what kind of happens at that point sort of depends on what the project was Mm. um for example if it was a crisis we tried to remain as long as possible so again i would make so because i was a a first like paid employee I'd make up the connections uh, establish a project and then we'd normally have volunteers who would fly out and um, you know run it for or who would be there for a couple of weeks and we'll try to support them for a few months or as long as we can um, but then when it was like a water pump for example we would hand that over to the village and say, okay, now it's your responsibility to maintain the pump. Um, here, that if you have issues, you can contact us and never breaks out. Because many, many times when you do a water pump, um, if it breaks after a few years, the villagers, is, even though they can collect money amongst themselves, might not have enough money to buy a, a new part or mm. something else. Yeah, it's it's very different depending on the project. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing. I can't even begin to imagine, but um, I guess that kind of reminds me um, when I was on a short-term project in South Africa, um, working in a local community, and I wasn't really working on a wash project per se, but I did, you know, living there with the community kind of much better understand you know, the resources they have to work with and the infrastructure, I guess. Because that year there was kind of a drought and not only did the local kind of community taps run out, but also the local street kind of dried up as well. And I guess, well, you know, I kind of come from a place of privilege, um, you know, living in the UK, but experiences like that really do kind of highlight why, we have a need for the projects that you've worked on, for example. My other kind of <laughs> questions are around your 
kind of most recent internship with United Nations Residence Office in Kuwait. Could you tell tell us a little bit more about that? How did you come about the role? What did you do and what did you learn? Yeah, um, so I sort of just applied for a lot of internships um, at the United Nations. Uh, They have their own platform. And I got the one in Kuwait. Unfortunately, because of COVID, I wasn't able to go to Kuwait and my internship was online. Oh, so it was okay. quite yeah, it was quite limited. Yeah. Um in that aspect. But it was still good. It's still a, a great experience. What would you advise to someone who's, you know, after listening to you talk? Um, who's interested in getting into humanitarian aid work, um, where would you advise they begin? Are there resources out there they can look at? Yeah, I think, um, so Red Art is a UK charity organisation. They have a lot of uh, good courses on humanitarian aid. Relief Web is another great site. They post a lot of uh, international jobs oh, and volunteering as well actually I mm. think uh, volunteering is a great way to sort of get an early exposure into international travel working abroad and sort of finding out what you enjoy I would always say to people who actually really consider going into this um, into humanitarian aid that it's not what you think it is in the terms of aspect of um, a lot of people, when I say to them what I've done, I'm like, oh, that must be really rewarding. And I'm like, you would think so, but it's not really. Mm. It's, it's more in terms of how limiting you realise what you can do as a single person. Um, because, for example... One of my last projects I did was in Zambia when they had a famine. And I had one area which had 10,000 families. But I only had enough funding to provide food packages for 4,600 families. And so that's where I met where you're making tough decisions. And so, you know, I said, okay, you know, first requirements were if they had a disability and were unable to work they'd get support. If they were elderly, they'd get support. Or if there was a single mother with children, they would get support. And so these were my criteria that I set to the local organisation and said, this is who we're going to prioritise. But then when you have people begging for food and, you know, they're extremely hungry and you're saying, no, I don't have enough food. That's so the memories, more the memories that I take back rather than. Yeah, it must have been really challenging. As you say, you might feel like that, you know, that was your t- key takeaway of those you couldn't help. And maybe you could always say, oh, but what about the, you know, 4,000 odd families that you did help? But of course, because of your drive to want to help people in the first place and get into the sector obviously it's going to be very like disappointing not being able to help everyone that does sound really tough you're 
while in the process of um, your postgraduate degree in development studies. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, what's that involved and what you're currently writing about on your dissertation? Yeah, sure. Um, so my master's has been fantastic. And anybody who's considering doing a, a development-related master's, I would highly recommend um, IDS, which is the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton, because most of the people who are doing the teaching, they're research fellows. So they um, they have their own research and then they teach a class of the, you know, one or two classes within their speciality with their specific knowledge that they cater for. So you get a lot of different exposure and it is in terms of uh, development institutes in the world, it is ranked number one. Um, so, you know, there's so many international students who come and, you know, that's some of the best aspects as well. So you, you're not just having great teaching, but you're meeting so many different people from so many different parts of the world who've done amazing projects and amazing work. And that's a really cool aspect. Mm, sounds like a great space to kind of get together and discuss all of these challenges and product uh, projects and things that you've worked on. It sounds like such a kind of inspiring sp uh, place to be. So I had a plan before I did my master's. I was like, oh, you know, sort of career plan. Of like, mm. I want to do this, do my master's and then do this. And then everything that I've learned in my master's, I was like, oh man, my plan kind of went out the window. Because yeah. It was just like, <laughs> it was, I thought I saw a lot of problems when I was working within the industry, but then you sort of studied the roots of the problems a bit more mm. during the masters and then which leads you to seeing so many other problems. And therefore it kind of just, yeah, the learning has been great, but it's uh, <laughs> it's taken me back. Yeah, and is that what you're kind of exploring in your dissertation topic? Uh, no. So through my dissertation, um, I actually picked a not. I'm not doing a standard sort of dissertation where you, you know, you have a research topic, and then um, you you have a research question, and it's quite standard. You would uh, do your introduction, your method, and then your conclusion. Um, whereas the one that I'm doing is, it's called action research. Um, and or many people refer to it as participatory action research. And it's more about the process rather than the results. Mm. Um, and it's all about, you know, forming, so the participatory action, uh, participatory aspect of it is about forming a group of co-inquiries, um, quite in co-inquirers to then, you know, get to a topic together to then say, okay, what do we want to research? So I did it with a charity uh, in Turkey, the one I mentioned before, Imeche. And then I went out there uh, last month, spent a month with them, sort of just in their offices, in their sort of... Uh, so I was going to look at eight distributions, um, my original topic, and seeing how you can make it more sustainable and 
environmentally friendly because there's a lot of waste in aid distributions and mm. especially with the transport costs that occur it's a lot of, um sometimes not the most environmentally friendly aspect but because of the so when I was there the charity were put under uh, new like, regulations from the government and so they sort of had to stop their distributions and that's the whole point of so in a normal research you'd be like okay that's done Mm. I have to you know sort of I can't do anything whereas action research is like okay you've been with the charity there's other issues that you would have highlighted what are these other issues and so now my research topic is looking at the volunteering aspect of the organization and the process of it and so I think I've learned a lot through um sort of doing this sort of research because I knew again with academia the solutions sometimes are like you know in an ideal scenario this would work but yeah. in reality it's never like that mm. no, you're never gonna find a complete ideal situation where you can apply these sort of answers and then that's where I find there's a big sort of gap between academia and actual real world problems yeah and i feel action research is a great way to kind of bridge that gap mm. when we go away or do a project in a, a country we sort of think okay we know the issue and we sort of know what what they need we come in and say we're from the western sort of world and we're going to come and you know show you what to do or so how to do it but a lot of the times and this is what I was saying with academia and sort of the gap is because no they those sort of solutions aren't going to work there so rather than saying okay we're going to go do this go there spend a little bit of time speak to people and then you'll actually understand why some of the issues are the way they are and you know that's the whole point of people and then be like okay rather than try to fix a problem mm. try to then work together and be like no let's find a creative solution together because they will have the local knowledge and uh, other aspects that you won't have but you might have the theoretical knowledge and if mm. you can bridge that gap together you can really find some creative and innovative solutions yeah I agree um definitely in terms of co-creations so powerful and coming from the communities and the people themselves um so I know recently I've seen some work where you know there's a lot of energy and movements around the environment and working directly for example with the communities who live in the rainforest who you know look after and know so much about the nature and instead letting organizations be led by them by the indigenous experts rather than the other way around um and it's great to see that finally <laughs> things are turning around and as you say not having that kind of colonial approach to projects is fantastic yeah thanks Barpour. no thank you rachel A 
big thank you to Barpour Singil. In this small talk episode, Barpour discussed his experience working internationally in the humanitarian aid sector and how the pandemic has affected the way international organisations work. He also touched on the need for co-production in community projects, something he is exploring in his master's dissertation. Having worked in the sector for several years, I also believe that true collaboration and enabling the community to directly influence projects is the best way to bring about success. It's clear that the people affected by an issue are the experts, and although historically charities have had a top-down approach when it comes to commissioning new projects, it's great to see that its colonial legacy is fading away in favour of a person-first approach. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forest of Falls for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. Thank you. Thank you.